Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize my voice or my mug from our other podcast, which is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. And after 200 plus episodes and that becoming this massive, uh, I think, resource for a lot of our viewers and listeners, what we learned is that it wasn't always the Hollywood celebrity or the best-selling author or business titan that got the most downloads and the most reviews. It was people like today's guest, people that had remarkable careers, but what was intriguing was they were relatable, is that we could pick out and tease out insights from their careers that we could apply in our own. For many of us who may be on our way to the C-suite or you are in the C-suite, that's an interest to you, so we're delighted that you've joined us today. Our guest is Christine Anderson, joining us from Midtown Manhattan on a beautiful spring day with a great corner view of uh, Midtown Manhattan. She is the global head of corporate affairs for Blackstone, a company I'm guessing many of you have heard of, but some of you may not be exactly sure what Blackstone does as an alternative asset management company. And so today we'll learn more about that. Christine, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you, Scott. Thrilled to be here. Let's talk about this office. Now, you warned me off air that because of some of your commitments at Blackstone to be environmentally conscious, the lights may go off and you may need to roll back and do a wave. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, that's not the case at Franklin Covey. We're committed, but we don't have that sort of timing thing. Tell me what it's like to be in a meeting and the, and the lights go dark. Uh, you know, I've gotten used to it, but it is a little bit off-putting sometimes. So we'll just, if, you, if it happens, just bear with me for just a second. It's kind of like living maybe in a, in a country where the power grid is not stable, but this is intentional, right? right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> hey, let's do a little bit of rewind. Before we talk about your role at Blackstone, what Blackstone's purpose is, you have a long career that's been dedicated to public policy as a corporate communications officer, as a press secretary. You've worked in the White House under an administration. You've worked for U.S. presidential campaigns, gubernatorial um, offices, broad, multi-decade career. What are some of the insights that you've learned from that career and how they've applied now to your role in corporate America? Sure. Well, so I, my, my career definitely wasn't a straight line. I started out in the Clinton White House and pretty quickly after that realized that, you know, the administration was ending and I was sort of forced to figure out what I wanted to do next. And over the ensuing years, I went, I decided that basically people in Washington didn't really understand Wall Street and people on Wall Street didn't understand Washington. So I thought that in the, you know, quote unquote, off years when I wasn't in politics, that I could really learn something on in, of business and finance that would make me more attractive when I went back to D.C. So what that has turned out has been that I have this kind of multidimensional background, which has been really helpful to me in my career because I tend to look at problems from different perspectives, which has been which has been helpful. And so when I my last political job ended, I I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, but I had this this idea that private equity would be really interesting. Um, I liked the model, which is essentially, you know, you make investments in companies um, and you have to put in the work over 10, 15 years to transform those assets so that they're worth more and that you can sell them on behalf of your investors, which are largely public pension plans. So I was fascinated by PE. I thought it would be really interesting and sort of like a business school education, if you will, to learn what made companies thrive. So I set out to work in PE. I interviewed around and finally landed at Blackstone where I've been for about 14 years. And I think my public sector background has been probably one of the most valuable things I've been able to bring to my role. And the firm has exploded since then. We're about a trillion under management today almost. 
Um, so real, real growth here, public company. Um, and we've really been committed to being more, um, I think, you know, more public and to tell our own story. And that's, that's opened up a lot of opportunities for me. It must be a weight on your and other colleagues' shoulders to know at nighttime you're responsible for a trillion dollars of individuals and institutionals' money, right? Money that is the endowments for right. universities and pension funds for large public and private companies. That has to be a weight that you, you and your colleagues take a lot of responsibility to shepherd and to manage carefully. It is. And I, if, you, if you were sitting at Blackstone today, you, you'd kind of feel that. It's a deep sense of responsibility that people here share. Um, and it's something we take pretty seriously. So it is, it's more of a mission-driven place than you might expect from the outside. And that's part of why I love it here. Christine, let's rewind a little bit to your political career. You served uh, on some very well-known administrations and, and political campaigns at the, at the Senate, presidential, and even gubernatorial. The majority of them were from the Democratic side, but that's immaterial because politicians are all equal opportunity offenders when it comes to trust, <laughs> when it comes to credibility, when it comes to competence. Um, in your past, I'm guessing you had some occasions when you worked with a public servant and a decision they made or a behavior they engaged in, whether that was public or private, was compromising to their brand and their trust with their constituency. As a communications director, a marketing director, an advisor, what do you do behind the scenes when a press report comes out and something has clearly happened that's likely true, it's a breach of trust, you're trying to, you know, um, defend the trenches, you're trying to be transparent, try not to have it break out in a, you know, an attack on you with all kinds of lies and innuendos. What goes through the conversation with you and the public servant to say, how much do we need to share? How do we be transparent without giving our enemies a playbook? Because we know that exists as well. Answer that however you'd like to. Yeah, I mean, that you're, it's part of the reason I love to hire people from politics because they just get a lot of reps in, right? There's perpetually a story you're dealing with um, on any given day. And I think that they're just really battle tested and, and ready for a high intensity media environment. I'd say most of the work, it, it starts long before you have an issue. So Blackstone, we take a pretty active um, you know, engagement strategy with the media. We look at these people as people we respect who have a job to do. Um, and we really try to get to know them and get to know what they're trying to cover and make sure that we engage with them regularly. Um, when issues arise, and I will tell you at a company, we have 250 portfolio companies on any given day, 15,000 real estate assets, issues will always you know, crop up. And I think it's what you do in those moments. And I'd say we're pretty, you know, we take the active engagement um, approach always, but you really start with what, what are the facts? And you have to, in my role, you really have to drill into what those facts are. People think about my role and people in PR as spinning, but you really can't spin much, right? You're really, the facts are what um, resonate and the facts are what will, uh, will you know, um, ultimately prevail. So I think you really have to, in my role and your, in our teams here, we really have to drill into what the facts are. And then we have to go, you know, really aggressively to make sure that the media hear those facts, right? And we, you know, we have all sorts of strategies for how we make sure that we, you know, we get those out there. But that's that's critical. And in terms of advising our people, um, you know, we try to be realists about, you know, the media's role and our role, what we can do, what we can't do, and we really try to, you know, work through it to to hopefully just make sure that if nothing else, our facts come through. 
Christine, a favorite pastime for some in the media or perhaps even in elected office is to demonize large organizations like Blackstone, right? And maybe mm -hmm. you could take a few minutes and demystify what is Blackstone, right. what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis, and why would the average American or investor who cares about their IRA, who cares about their philanthropic dollars in an institution of higher learning, who cares about their 401k, how does Blackstone fit in the mix of the um, American and global economy? Sure. I mean, that's... Part of the reason I came here was because private equity had kind of a bad name. And I thought that it was a really interesting challenge. I, I believed in the model and I thought it was would be kind of interesting to try to help go out and and tell that story, which I think is a pretty, pretty good story to tell. Um, so private equity, simply put, and, and Blackstone specifically, we, as, as you said earlier, Scott, we invest on behalf of big public institutions. So those are some of the biggest investors in the world. And then we also invest on behalf of individuals who invest some of their retirement savings uh, in our products. And so and take their capital and we then go put it to work. And we'll have you know, themes that really interest us, like for example, the move to e-commerce, we're massive players in logistics, and we'll go and buy up logistics assets that we will then own for sometimes five, 10, 15 plus years, sometimes even longer, and we'll own those assets. And typically there's a transformation that has to come about. We'll have to you know, improve the way the business is run. We'll try to you know, help them enter new markets. We'll help them expand and grow. And if we're successful, I mean, you know, uh, thankfully Blackstone has largely been successful at doing this. When we're successful and the markets are right, we're able to go out and sell those assets for a profit. And those profits go back to our investors. And it's just, that is what we do day in, day out. It's, we don't, we don't, we're not day-to-day -day traders. We're much more long-term investors. And, um, and I think, you know, again, when we profit, when the companies profit, right? So we're, there's a lot of alignment in creating economic growth and job creation, building these into stronger entities that are good for their communities. And when we do things like that, um, our investors profit. So everything we do is in the lens of, of fiduciaries to our investors. And I think we can, in the process, make these companies really great places to work and, um, and great corporate actors. Great, uh, great uh, uh, recap of your mission. In addition to leading public affairs, corporate affairs, marketing, you also lead Blackstone's ESG efforts. Would you kind of sure. talk about what that means, what that look like, looks like? For some people, they may not be real familiar with an ESG function as in a company. Yeah. Take some time talking about that, if you will. Sure. I mean, it's a good segue from from what I was just saying. I mean, I when I first got to Blackstone, ESG wasn't ESG. It was corporate social responsibility. And frankly, a lot of the things that that today ESG encompasses were not even considered part of that back then. Right. I mean, things like, you know, risk, um, regulatory risk, compliance, all things like that that kind of fit um, under an ESG umbrella today because ESG has just gotten so vast. We've taken a, a really hyper-targeted approach to ESG. What we're interested in things that make our companies stronger. So for us, we focus on um, decarbonization. We focus on good governance of our companies, which we think is foundational. And we focus on making our companies more diverse, which we think helps them make better decisions. So we have hyper-targeted efforts within each of those. And we really stick to that. We stick to where we think we can add value. Um, the broader ESG landscape, I think you and I both know Scott has gotten a lot of attention recently, but that's why we feel pretty good about a, a, a pretty narrow program that focuses on, on, on actions that make our companies better.
Christine, you've obviously spent your life, as demonstrated by your remarkable command of our language, uh, in communications. Will you speak to all of the leaders that are watching and listening around the world? I just kind of want to ask a broad question around the fundamentals of communication. So whether mm -hmm. someone is perhaps a first-level leader or they're at the C-suite or they're on a board and they're responsible for communicating policy, strategy, a defense of perhaps some consumer group or a consumer who's mad at you, what are some of the fundamental principles that you would advise perhaps Stephen Schwarzman, right, the co-founder mm -hmm. and CEO? What are the communication principles that you advise all leaders to remind themselves of and train themselves in? Sure. I would, I mean, it's a great question. I would say simplicity, clarity, and, and then repetition. I think repetition is probably the most important and it's the hardest for people to do. I work with a bunch of smart people who they like to, to sound interesting and have something to convey, but what they don't realize is, is that you really have to repeat the message over and over for people to start hearing it. Sure, we may have heard it 500 times and be sick of it, but, but broader audiences may not have heard it yet. So um, Steve doesn't need a lot of coaching, but I will tell you that just trying to simplify down to the, the simplest way of conveying a message, sometimes a, a good anecdote helps or um, you know a, a good metaphor. And then, and then really just trying to, to hammer that home as many times as you can. Right. And and throughout all your communications, it's you know, you might say it today, but then tomorrow find a way to weave that into other other methods of communicating and other channels you might have. So that would be my advice. Great, great reminder. Let's talk about your own career for a moment. What's the best career decision you ever made? Single best career decision. And it can't be joining Blackstone. That's a given. <laughs> Single best career decision. I would say. Um, Probably, you know, frankly, probably some of the hires I've made. I mean, that, that's not necessarily a career decision for me, but when I've really hired the right people who have allowed me yes. leverage to do more, that has probably helped catapult my career more than anything else. I completely agree. If Ask me that question for a moment. Ask me the question. Yeah, tell me your, your greatest career decision. Oh, Jennifer Coons, Mike Elwell, and Kelly Thompson. <laughs> Right? Because not only did I help grow their careers, they made me look like a genius in terms of mm -hmm. their system skills, their ability to educate me on technical concepts, concepts I didn't understand, their creative genius. I mean, those three people put me into the C-suite because of their loyalty and their investment in me. And hopefully they feel the same back into them. I agree with you passionately. It's transformational. Yeah. And if you can convince those people to stay with you longer yes. term, it's... Yep. it's it, there's nothing else like it. Beautifully said. So Kelly, Mike, and Jen, I appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> what's the worst career decision? You look back and you say, you know, I was actually running from something. I wasn't running to something, or I stayed too long with an abusive leader. Was there something that maybe you made a poor decision on that others might say, oh my gosh, I'm there. Thank you for like naming that for me. It's a good question. I, I've made many mistakes, I would say, but probably I think I... I I've been very tied to my desk throughout my career. And I'd say that at times when I had opportunities to go to industry conferences or, or mm -hmm. network more mm -hmm. with my peers or to, there are the lights, um, or um, you know, get out there a little bit more even internally with some of my internal uh, leaders at the firm, I'm usually just kind of tied to the work, right? And then there's just a, a heavy volume here at Blackstone that has to get done every day. So I would say that I, I can't, I, you know, 
probably tough to say that it held me back, but it's definitely something that I feel could have propelled me further if I'd been better at that. Um, I don't always take the time to walk the floor um, and things like that I think are, are really helpful. And I've learned that more later career. Uh, Christian, you and I share something in common. That was we have a household of kind of preteen and teenagers. <laughs> you shared to me offline that you and your husband are parents to four young kids. Remind me the ages again. I've got an 8, 10, 12, and 14. I, I can't respond with a straight face. May God have mercy on both of your souls. I don't know about you, but I swear that my three sons plot every evening between midnight and 4 a.m. in the attic how they're going to destroy my marriage. And then my and wife and I get up 12, at right? 8, You're 10, 8, and 12. 10, 12. Yeah. 8, 10, and 12. And they all have my personality to my wife's horror. And so we try to repair our marriage every morning over coffee because they're out to get us. Here's why I'm mentioning this. I'd love for you to speak to all the leaders who are parents mm -hmm. that are listening or perhaps they're caregivers or they're guardians or they're aunts or uncles or neighbors. What are the skills that you want my three sons to be working on so that when they are applying for an internship at Blackstone nine years from now, my oldest will be going into eighth grade, what are the skills when you interview my oldest son, Thatcher, what, what are the skills you're gonna be looking for during that summer internship in college? Sure, so some of it's just innate, you know, so I'm looking for people that just care deeply about the work and about the firm. And you can really pick that up in interviews. It's hard to fake how, how much you care and, and then how prepared you are. How did you do your homework? It sounds so obvious, but it's the number of candidates that I see even today that are not prepared. Um, and then also work ethic. I would say to Thatcher, you know, um, your generation got a little bit of a bad name, right? In terms of, of how they want to work. And, you know, look, I'm looking for someone that has a little bit more of, call it an old school, you know, work ethic around seeing the value and showing up at the, at the at, you know, at the office, thinks they can learn a lot, who before they leave at the end of the day says, what, you know, what is anything else I can do for you? Those sorts of people um, tend to go really far here, Blackstone, and I think, and I think more broadly. I think you and I should write a book together because we <laughs> see the world very similarly. Hey, let's talk about that topic, kind of the post-pandemic work environment. Uh, how would you describe Blackstone's point of view on what it means to be a contributing colleague at Blackstone in April of 2023? You see a lot of companies now, I think I read just this week where it, it, a major financial company is now directing senior leaders back in the office. They want FaceTime, they want floor time. They recognize that leaders are the linchpin of the company. Where, where yeah. is Blackstone, a how many employees worldwide? Almost 5,000. I mean, it's a large organization. Yeah. And of course, you're, you know, I'm sure you and Steve occasionally enjoy working from a remote site, right? And that's a benefit we all like. Where is the puck landing with Blackstone in terms of creating the culture you likely had pre-pandemic with the reality of this gift that we've all been given, which is a little more agility and nimbleness, recognizing that we still benefit from being face-to-face. -face. I don't think that's disputable. We've, we've taken a very you know, counter-narrative approach, which is that Blackstone believes we are better together. So even, you know, we hated those months when we were, when we were apart, I think, in terms of our ability to kind of be together and, and get things done. And we very quickly moved. We probably had people, a lot of people coming back as early as, you know, July and August of, of 2020. So we really pushed early to bring people back. 
I would say, you know, I'm in the office five days a week. I'd say a good chunk of our population, our investing population, our senior leaders are all five days a week um, around the edges in some corporate groups um, where, you know, it's there, it's just a competitive dynamic. We do have more flexibility. But I would say just generally our, our strong bias is that you're more efficient, you get more done. And it's just also more fun. I will tell you, it's I find it so draining to be on you know endless Zoom calls, not this one, but endless Zoom calls all day. And luckily, we don't have to do that anymore. You know, you might have one person on Zoom, but largely people are in person, which which we really feel is important. I love that tagline. We're better together. I think there's so much truth in that. And like anybody else, regardless of age, I enjoy the luxury of sometimes having flexibility not to have to come to the office. And but I, I generally agree with that. Another reason we should write a book together. Uh, let's talk about the future. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I'd love to know what's on the horizon. I mean, you can't pick up a paper without chat GPT or crypto mm -hmm. imploding or right. what is Elon Musk doing? Maybe beyond those things, are there some technology, some industries, some competencies that you see developing that perhaps Blackstone is interested in, you're tipping your waters in, that you want to get on the radar of other C-suite leaders to say, you know, you sure. need to not be complacent in this industry, it's on the rise. Yeah. Well, look, I'm I'm not your best expert to speak to probably any of those. I'd say as a firm, we're, we're really drilling into AI and as I'm sure many others are and how it can help us in many different ways and also how it could disrupt industries that we're looking to invest in. So we try to stay ahead of these trends um, from an information flow standpoint, just so that we're really, really smart investors with our investors capital. Um, but maybe maybe I'll answer it more from my my seat. And I think I do think the communications industry is rapidly changing. Both the media landscape, which we could talk about, is is very different today than it was five years ago. But you know, companies now and brands really have a responsibility and a need to self-publish. And so that has dramatically, what I do today is very different than what I would have done 20 years ago in a similar seat. Um, and I think that's super exciting for us to have our own channels and to tell our own story because the media obviously can't tell every story and maybe they're not inclined to tell every story. But when you have direct communication channels to your stakeholders and your audiences, you can really get news out that you couldn't get out, you know, five, 10 years ago. So I'd say that's a big shift and something that we're investing heavily in. We've invested in video capabilities and, and digital capabilities. You know, we use events in a better way than we than we ever have. Um, all of those um, sort of self-publishing and, and marketing capabilities are are absolutely crucial to what we do today. I, I think thought leadership is a term that maybe is used, overused in some industries, but it's very much what you're talking about is how do you engage directly with your audience? Here's a final question for you. Uh, by most measures, you are an expert in corporate communication. To what extent do you have an opinion on should the authors themselves kind of be public personalities? Maybe not like that of a you know, right. multi-billionaire. I think there's a difference between Steve Schwarzman's profile and maybe you know, some other well-known people. Um, right. What would you advise leaders in any company in terms of their social media, their blogosphere, their video, how they can be both a good ambassador for the organization, but also have a life outside of the company and, and maybe engage in social. Any, any principles yes. you tend to subscribe to there? I love that question. I mean, we, we tend to triage that a little bit. Not all people or all leaders need the same plat public platform. And for many people who can do their job without it, it's frankly a lot you know, lower stress and, right. and better for them personally. But I think for certain heads of business, um, 
it really is critical these days to have a voice in the conversation. So I'd say, you know, we, we take these folks and we sit them down and we really think through like, what's the business case? Um, usually there's not a personal need. Most of our people are kind of just like, you know, do the work. They're not, they're not really looking to be self-promotional. Um, and you have to kind of nudge them a little bit when there's a real business case. And for those folks where there is a, a business case, we kind of develop a program for them that again gives them self-publishing capabilities where our team can support them in, let's say, doing a LinkedIn post. I mean, I I only joined LinkedIn not not too long ago and I I I was kind of anti-social media for my own personal life and got into it because I was trying to use it more professionally for our, our firm. And I'm a I'm a total convert in in terms of that channel and how it can be used. So while there might be some people at your organization that should be going on TV and doing the high octane, you know, events and, and, and things like that, uh, for a lot of people, it's really sufficient to have a really thoughtful LinkedIn program and to post with some regularity on topics that really matter to their business. And then and we have so let's call it 30, 35 folks across the firm who we ask to do this. We actively build a program for them where, you know, we're helping make sure that they can get approvals on their posts really fast and we make it really user friendly. Um, and we kind of encourage them to do this because any piece of news that we push out over the Blackstone channel gets about this much you know, attention. And we can amplify that through 30 people reaching, call it almost, you know, double that um, through their efforts and their audiences. And sometimes those audiences are more specific to what we're trying to communicate because they frankly reach people that go deeper in their line of work or in their you know outside interests or in their affinity groups you name it and so it gives us a, a whole new audience and we've, we've found that to be one of the most impactful communications um you know exercises that we've done at the firm in the last few years again i'm in violent agreement with you i've been advising many of my clients that by and large people don't don't follow organizations they follow people right. And yeah. now there may be some outliers, right, on that. But generally speaking, I'm much more likely to, to uh, shape my perception of Blackstone be a connection through you versus following Blackstone LinkedIn. Let me ask one more follow-up question, and I'll, I'll yeah. let you go today. It's, we're coming into the weekend here, and I appreciate your time. Uh, social media is like the Wild West, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. Twitter, and we won't comment on that. And there's Meta, which there's lots of comments on that. And mm -hmm. it seems like the safe harbor for everyone is LinkedIn. There's something to be learned about how that company has been managed and grown because everyone I interview, every celebrity, every business titan, everyone says the same thing. They all use the word LinkedIn and no one uses any, any other word. Now I am on Facebook and I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn and YouTube and you name it. From a communications expert, do you have any opinions on kind of where that puck is going in terms of your affinity for social media versus traditional media, print and digital versus television and radio? Radio does still exist. Is there any medium or platform that you're kind of excited about in terms of not just being a safe harbor, but you know, like what's the future TikTok? Any sure. insights on yeah. that? So not, TikTok's not, not the future of TikTok, but what is the future of TikTok? Sure. I, I, TikTok we're fascinated by and we're spending a lot of time looking at that as a communications channel and our, one of our portfolio companies, Attention Media, they actually are helping us think through how we might use that platform um, to communicate to new audiences and, and frankly even younger audiences that are investors um, in our private equity products. So I, I, we think that that has a lot of uh, potential. We're not, we're not yet there. Um, 
I would say I'm 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 of the belief that multi-channel is the way to go. I agree. Right? You're not going to ever hit all your audiences in one place. So you really have to knit together a thoughtful effort. Um, you know, this is this is old school, but like email is still probably the most effective channel you have, provided you have good sort of maintenance of your email list. Um, so that's really, really critical. And then as you as you then go from there to social media, um, you know, LinkedIn, it's not only safe. But it is a um, it allows you certain flexibility, right? You don't have to post on the day of things can you have a little bit more time to get your thoughts together. You're not in a firestorm after you post something right where you then have to respond. And it's really labor intensive for people if they want to be on Twitter. Um, so we technically, while Blackstone might be on, on Twitter, I'm not urging our senior leaders to necessarily get out on Twitter and have a point of view. That's much harder for us to manage, lower upside for them. Yeah. But it's still a really important fl platform where I think you have you have to be on some level, particularly around, you know, your, you know, thought leadership and, and current topics and trending trending issues. So I, I'm, I'm a multi-channel advocate. Uh, again, violent agreement. Christine Anderson, Global Head of Corporate Affairs for Blackstone, joining us from a beautiful spring day in Manhattan. I so appreciate you investing in our audience today. Thank you. No, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.